0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 517th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Since developing permaculture with Bill Mollison in the mid-1970s, David's local and global influence has gone beyond permaculture networks. He is a public intellectual working outside of academia, government, and corporate support. His depth of thinking, design practice, and teaching has been continually informed by practical experience through a lifetime of household self-reliance, voluntary simplicity, and innovative action. He has received many awards, including an honorary PhD from Central Queensland University. He has written eight books about permaculture and related topics, been a part of at least five other books, written multiple articles, given numerous presentations, has over 40 years of practical experience. He is an authority on the permaculture concept and how to make it work, and basically, He's the guy who penned it. We are honored to have you on the show today, David. Are you ready to rock permaculture?
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Excellent. I love asking this question of people that have done a permaculture design course, and never did I dream that I could ask you this, but can you define permaculture?
1: Yeah, well, I tend to simplify it as a design system that is focused on both sustainable living and land use. So, By using that living and land use, uh, apart from the alliteration, is that it reminds us that it's about the consumption side of the equation, how we live and what our behaviours are and our organisation and our views of things and what we do, and the land use, which is primarily our working relationship with nature by which we get our needs, and the preeminent one of those is agriculture. So it's concerned with both the production and the consumption side of the equation and how through redesign, we bring those two things back together and through that process, make them capable of enduring and being sustainable. So that can be applied at the individual level and it can be applied at the societal level but it definitely involves design. So design is sort of like a new literacy in the world of ways of thinking about patterns that inform or create new things that previously didn't exist. Rather than just copying or replicating what already exists, design is is really that process where new things come into being. And you know, it is a slowly emerging literacy. It's been slowly emerging through the 20th century. When we started talking about design of farms, uh, you know, in the 70s, people said, What do you mean? Do you mean some nice row of trees down the driveway? Like, well, what's good design got to do with agriculture? Whereas today, even without permaculture, there's movements in Australia like land care and whole farm planning, the recognition that the way things are laid out and structured is an important part of agriculture, rather than just agronomy and husbandry, which are the more traditional focus for agriculture. So that's an example of the way design thinking has come in and start to be in, infused as as a, a normal concern in, in agriculture. And... Permaculture has contributed to that, but I see it as part of this larger process where can we all become designers in what we do? And to some extent, we all are designers and are designing all the time, but we can get a lot better at it. So permaculture is is trying to accelerate that skill with the focus on on how we get that production consumption conundrum back down to smaller localized scale integrated in a way that it can deal with the sustainability crisis.
0: You've used that word multiple times now, sustainability, and my listeners know I'm not a great big fan of sustainability because I believe that sustainability simply sustains what we've created. It doesn't do anything to fix it. I think it's a great Mm -hmm. intermediate Place to go, and you know, yay, sustainable, let's go there. But we have to go beyond sustainable, and
1: yeah, there's, and and of course, that was the the title of my book, uh, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. Uh, There's a, a few things in that, in the same way that the permanence in permaculture can be easily critiqued, in the way I mentioned sustainability, sustaining what already exists. Is obviously not possible in the larger sense. Our society is built on the unsustainable. So right. a fundamental redesign is necessary to achieve that. And some of the processes that are involved, of course, aren't just conserving what we already have. If we think about the lineage in agriculture of soil conservation, the soil conservation movements that exploded in both the United States and Canada and Australia and other countries in the 1930s, recognition about the loss of soil and how do we stop that process to ideas, no, we've got to actually create soil. We've got to regenerate things beyond just conserving. And, of course, one of the first articulators of that was P.A. Yeomans in his key line concept, which permaculture owes a lot of lineage to, and was actually a conscious design system for managing water on broadacre land that we identified as one of the only precursors we could find to permaculture. So that idea that we actually are going to renew or regenerate biological capacity and create abundance rather than sustaining what already exists, of course, is core to that process But if we look at it in a larger, longer historical sense, the transition from something which cannot be sustained to something that can be sustained over centuries eventually settles down into some sort of cyclical process which is not rapidly going in some direction because all of those processes are rapidly going in some direction come to an end pretty quickly one way or another. Right, And eventually, you know, uh, human culture like uh, Australian indigenous culture being in more or less balance with its environment for thousands and possibly tens of thousands of years is that's more the definition of what we mean in the long term by sustainability. You know, that uh, the test of time, that the system more or less in some is recognisable as ongoing and sickly continuing. And of course, that's been a great challenge for all of the civilisations which have arisen and, and fallen mostly based on their destruction of their agricultural base or depleting their environmental resources and then collapsing. Can we get past that pattern with complex? civilizations and achieve what indigenous cultures have achieved.
0: That's a very interesting question. And I don't know that we're going to see it in our lifetime.
1: Well, of course, that process, even if it's a a rapid process, is really long in terms of lifetimes. You know, it's something we should expect. You know, it takes hundreds of years. And what I articulated in my future scenarios work is the, the idea of energy descent, and that instead of shifting quite quickly into some sort of sustainability state we should expect the future to be one actually have some similarities to the past in that it will involve continuous change for many many generations into the future but that that change will be in the opposite direction to what we've been going in it will be one of reduced energy and resources available to support humanity having to live smarter with less living more lightly on the planet for a long time into the future before that settles into a new sustainable state so that process is is really one that goes on certainly for decades and potentially centuries so that's very that's my more fundamental challenge to the ideas of that we're going to slot into this sustainable state. And to some extent, that has been there from the beginnings in permaculture. And I'd give an example, the idea of uh, techniques of sheet mulching is something that a lot of people involved in gardening and urban agriculture would be familiar with, of a way to rapidly convert ground that's covered with perennial weeds and grasses into a, a productive site without cultivation by using huge amounts of organic matter to smother and compost the material underneath and planting directly into it. Now, that's been so associated with permaculture that people have even called that's what permaculture is. Right. But of course it's just a technique and you know those techniques all have their strengths and weaknesses. Well, the weakness is that that involves huge amounts of surplus organic matter which we have available because of a wasteful industrialized agriculture and urban society that produces all these wastes that we need to reuse rather than go into landfills where they create methane and you know contribute massively to greenhouse gas emissions. And that, of course, is a waste of precious nutrients that have come out of soil somewhere else. So that's a great thing to do that. But that's an opportunistic strategy which is, and technique, which is available now into energy descent that will not be available because no one will be throwing away those things. Right. So that's an example of how right from the beginning permaculture had some things that were like about this is sort of the direction we need to go for the, the long-term human transition over a, a long period of time and other things that are just an opportunistic use along that pathway. And we can see in permaculture projects around the world, I would say creative reuse more than ecological agriculture or ecological building would probably be the almost universal strategy that you see in permaculture projects around the world. How can we take the wastes from society and do something more creative with them rather than, you know, smashing a bottle and recycling it, melting it down and making another glass bottle which is a pretty sort of dumb low-level thing to do compared with taking that bottle and preserving you know the food from your garden and putting it back in the bottle and doing that as we've been doing you know for 20 or 30 years sometimes the same bottles you know much much more (laughs) sophisticated and smart creative reuse than recycling but that doesn't mean to say that that is not parasitizing off the wastes of that industrial system, which I think is incredibly appropriate. Oh, yes. You know, and we can see that more broadly in urban agriculture. We can see examples of using food waste, for example, from the massively wasteful catering and urban food waste systems, getting incredibly high value in terms of nutrients for worm processing and composting back to soil fertility. But, you know, fast forward into more frugal futures, no one's going to be throwing away that food. And in our household, our chooks would starve based on what comes out of our kitchen. Right. (laughs) And, of course, chooks or animals eating those wastes is a preferred use to composting them, you know. And that's part of that common sense that peasant people's you know, just intuitively understood. But for a lot of modern people, oh, we're recycling it, you know, it's being composted. And the fact that it was perfectly good food yesterday, (laughs) you know, people don't necessarily see there's a whole lot of ways where you need to reuse the thing as it degrades back to its constituent parts. Because the energy that it took and the resources that it took to turn it from soil and sunlight into food was a huge amount in the first place so as we use it we need to use it on its way down the energy hierarchy too so you know eating it the next day is the is the best use and then it goes to the animals and after the animals it goes through them and becomes fertility for the soil so those sorts of you know recognition that there's a hybrid in permaculture between opportunistic use of wastes, and in fact, directly parasitizing of systems that are being wasteful. And very early on in our discussions, Mollison said to me, mature systems in the sense of ecologically sophisticated systems exploit immature systems that are bleeding or throwing away their resources. And we see this in nature where fully vegetated sites capture soil, capture fertility, capture dust, you know, fertility from birds and grow in strength. And some of that is coming from systems that are nearby that are bleeding, like agricultural landscapes that are losing those things. So all those understandings are important to recognizing those conundrums around the idea of sustainability.
0: Wow. I'm just sitting over here shaking my head thinking, oh my gosh, what a great conversation to be having. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: That's quite okay. And hopefully that abstraction is not taking us too far from, you know, anchoring it back to relevant practicalities.
0: Yeah, no, that was awesome. So let's talk about your new book, Retro Suburbia. Tell me about it.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose back in the 90s, I started teaching on permaculture design courses that the suburbs of the 50s and 60s might be, ironically, a model of sustainability that we could aspire to because we'd gone so far in the wrong direction in the meantime. (laughs) You know, that there was a lot to learn from the quite recent past of what was already the most extravagant, wasteful consumer societies, you know, that had ever been invented for a mass population – you know, suburban America and Australia in the the 1950s and 60s, you know. Australia was, you know, right up there through the 20th century as one of the richest countries in the world. In 1900, it was actually the equal richest country in the world per head of population with Argentina. So we have that same, you know, long lineage that has existed in the United States that was a reference point for the unsustainability of what we'd done, but there were still a lot of elements that we could draw from that. And I was also asked a question by Adam Grubb in an interview in the early 2000s in response to the the peak oil film The End of Suburbia, which was of course a, a great film about the limits of resources, which had been sidelined in the discussions, you know the focus on on climate change. But I questioned the notions that suburbia was a completely lost case and that urban densification was our future because I saw suburbia as having this huge potential for revitalization through a ruralization of the suburban landscape through essentially what I called garden agriculture and urban agriculture. So I make the distinction that garden agriculture is essentially in the non-monetary economy often directly you know around a house feeding a household more or less with some exchange and that urban agriculture for me was more things happening on public land or on a larger scale on private land within the urban fabric mostly producing food in the monetary economy but also involving you know urban farms uh, community gardens and these more amalgamated things. But between those two forms, we could provide a lot of the food for people and we could retrofit what we already have. So that retrofitting idea was based on the fact that the sustainability crisis driven by multiple things, but most obviously by the climate now, climate emergency, was not going to lead to us rebuilding all of our residential landscapes in some new, cool, state-of-the-art ecological state. That takes, you know, more than 100 years to do that. And that's when you've got a rapidly growing energy base and rapidly growing economy. We'll be facing that crisis future more or less with what we've got. There's no way around that. So that means retrofitting what we already have, creatively reusing is actually the essence of what we need to do in facing this crisis. And that meant that there's a big role for individuals, families, small businesses. It's all fiddly, small stuff, and actually a lesser role for corporations and governments. So from a permaculture perspective, that was good in how we re- build locally economies the other aspect to retro suburbia because it is in both the built environment the biological and the behavioral so the book is actually on in three large sections some people would say it's actually three books so most people would associate retrofitting with the the built environment how we can make buildings fit for new purpose you know um, and my favorite You know, cool climate is, you know, adding a passive solar greenhouse on the north side as both a growing environment and, you know, to passively solar heat the house. But we can see how we need to retrofit, reshape the biological landscape, especially the aesthetic amenity landscapes of lawns and ornamental plants and maybe large, shady forest trees that are very good somewhere else but are not so great really right around where people live, especially in cooler climates. So we need to reshape that with food-producing landscapes that um, permaculture has been associated with. And we also need to retrofit our behaviour, radically reshape the daily habits of life and how we organise ourselves in households. So retro suburbia draws the attention back to the household scale, which is sort of in between the individual focus and the community focus. And that's a really important part because what you find is that often a lot of people working at the bottom up sort of end think about the individual And they think about the the collective community organisation, city farms, um, community supported agriculture, and often forget that in between those two, people live in households and that households are the, and whether it's a family or whatever form of organisation is, are the fundamental economic and social unit of society. And they've been taken for granted that, yeah, they're just there. But no, they're not, because they've actually all been fragmented, often down to one person living alone.
0: Exactly. Or even
1: two people is an incredibly inefficient, vulnerable household. And what we know from past crises and economic downturns in history is that ordinary people cope with those by amalgamating into larger households often extended family households, but all sorts of sharing arrangements. So we know that in the future we're facing, uh, people will do that and the evidence is already there, more in your country than in our country because we've sort of been as an energy and resource rich country relative to our small population, haven't quite suffered as much as uh, what has happened in the United States and Europe for a lot of people. But the evidence is already there that people are coping with tougher times by extended family reunion and sharing and those sorts of things. Yeah. So to do that in a creative way, positively, rather than forced through necessity, gives huge increased capacity. Everyone knows that it's you know, not much more work to cook a meal for for four people or five people as it is for one or two but when we get out in the garden it actually makes sense to have you know one really competent gardener feeding about five to ten people and that a lot of the other skill sets of self-reliance and looking after ourselves work better when there's more people and obviously there's a big role in that for all the community and enterprise level but if we forget the household we're forgetting the most important thing, which is at the moment the weakest. So permaculture in its early phases, you could say a lot of it was quite strongly focused around the individual in the sense of people experimenting with all sorts of new techniques or, you know, being passionate about raising seeds of valuable tree crops that will one day transform the world. So a lot of if you like, even cranky individualists doing their own thing. Now, most of those people might have had a family, <laughs> but often the rest of the family wasn't necessarily so engaged. And when the whole family, you know, or household is engaged, then those radical individuals driving things can go a lot further. So if we think that first wave of permaculture was a lot of it was really focused around that. And then there was a second wave, which was more focused around community, especially intentional community, how we're going to design eco-villages, and also the transition towns movement, which in some ways was a spin-off from permaculture in Britain and, of course, is spread around the world, very focused on the community level. So I think retro-suburbia is taking the learnings from that community focus and the learnings from the individual pioneer who's sort of pushing the boundaries and saying, let's join those together to reinvigorate our households. And there's been, yeah, a very positive response to that. And I suppose one of the ways I started to sort of project these ideas was more than a decade ago, I started doing a presentation which became called Aussie Street, And it's just a typical suburban street. And it's a sort of a permaculture soap opera. Oh, nice. (laughs) Uh, Through the decades of how the lives change in those houses and how the houses change Mm -hmm. for the better and for the worse, and how they then go through uh, sort of one of the houses and then spreading to another one, the sort of permaculture retrofit in the 2000s, and then there's a fourth stage where it moves into a future scenario, which is actually the second Great Depression of the 2020s, <laughs> and it shows how the the residents of Aussie Street survive and thrive despite the hard times. So it's a, a positive story, but it's actually based on the actual lived reality and shared understandings of you know people who've lived in suburbia through those decades and it sort of had a life of its own in a lot of ways and I've done various iterations of it and then we wrote it down for the first time as a chapter in the book and it's been the basis of a lot of presentations I've been doing it around the country in Australia because it's a way to connect to a lot of people who are not necessarily even familiar with permaculture. So it doesn't sort of like... Permaculture is just one of the things happening in the story. (laughs) And it's also a way to connect to people who are looking to make changes in their own lives for the better, whether that's motivated by concern about environmental crisis, financial crisis, or just wanting to live a better life now and recognising that by downshifting and simplifying getting out of debt there's a lot more control over our lives and of course a big part of that and a big part of the motivations are people's the huge renewed interest in food growing and obviously your own podcast program is part of that of this huge upwelling in interest in urban agriculture in all its forms
0: oh and it's exploding which is exciting for me because i've been growing my own food since the mid-70s and just in the past five or six years people of their interest level has just exploded
1: yeah well i i suppose through the decades when people ask me about you know that uh, yeah especially younger people would say oh there must you know the interest in permaculture must be so much greater than it was at the uh, at the beginning and i said well yes to some extent, but that has gone in waves, and I explained that history of that huge interest there was in the 70s, -hmm. and then we went through a sort of a, a downturn in the 80s, or a consolidation, if you like, and then there was another wave in the late 80s, early 90s, then I think there was a third wave brewing at the turn of the millennium that was sort of knocked sideways a bit by the war on terror and the events yeah. of September 11th. And then after the global financial crisis, it really sort of yes. took off. And that interest in permaculture is part of a larger pattern where when faith in society's institutions and trust in the economy is at a low ebb, then the interest in permaculture and associated, uh, if you like, bottom-up solutions, environmental and social solutions, it gets stronger.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that means it's counter-cyclical to how the mainstream economy is going. Right, And we certainly look to some things that are happening in the United States that are you know, pushing those boundaries even further. And we can see that it's correlated with, you know, very tough conditions. And certainly from our perspective in this country, along with the amazing lessons that were learnt from the crisis in Cuba in the 90s, the difficult conditions in places, especially in the Midwest, of the United States, in Detroit and Chicago, uh, you know, uh, seem to be, from our perspective, you know here at a distance create some amazing examples of urban agriculture leading to you know community and economic you know renewal right so that correlation is you know quite strong and yeah the the interest now is way beyond anything you know of past waves i think yeah
0: which is nice so where do we find your book at i just while we while you were chatting i did a search for retro suburbia, and I'm not finding it for sale where I would normally find it for sale. So, where do I get a copy?
1: Ah, well, that's very interesting because we've been in the book, not just authorship, but publishing and distribution business for quite a while. And our books have been, you know, in the, you know, mm-hmm. not just in Australia, but overseas. And through that experience, fairly some years ago, we decided that the problem centralization of the Amazons and other retail giants of the world were part of the problem. And we decided we wouldn't participate in that. So that means our book is not available through those massive chains, but it is distributed in the US through the Permaculture Principles US website. And that's a partnership with the Permaculture Design magazine, which has book distribution capacity. And we're developing that parallel access for the book. But there's also another aspect that we've done, which uh, is really a lesson from Permaculture One. When that book was written, it was written for Tasmania. And one of the first things the publisher said, oh, it at least has to be generalised to be relevant and written for southeastern Australia because you can't write a book for a population that only is 500,000 people. So of course the publishing industry is trying to always force authors to go for the mass market. So what we've done with Retro Suburbia is saying the future is local and we've written from our local experience Mm -hmm. in in the cool temperate climates of southeastern Australia, primarily in the state of Victoria, primarily around the city of Melbourne, uh, second biggest city in the country, but sort of spreading out in its examples across the continent and with a few examples in New Zealand. But the book has, you know, the sun coming from uh, the north, (laughs) not the south. It's, It's not written for a North American audience, but what we see is that people who are into this sort of stuff will pick the things that are relevant, the patterns that, yes, really make sense for them, and say, no, where we are, you know, that needs to be tweaked in this way or that. So in that sense, we haven't written the book for the mass of the population in another hemisphere, in another place. But it is cued to our own environment that we hope we can get the traction to push it out past the usual people in these sort of networks who would be interested in a book from the co-originator of permaculture, and so that's been our focus has been absolutely local, and yet we've already had requests from Latin America wanting to translate the book into Spanish, and nice. we, you know had discussions about, well, yes. You know, and we've done translations of previous of our books, but, you know, that how do you translate the the technical and social patterns that make sense another place? And that's the challenge more than the, you know, the language translation. So we certainly see that people who are in these fields will find an incredible amount of use in retro suburbia. But in that sense, we haven't sort of like so far done that bigger push. The other thing is that it's a huge book. It's a giant manual. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, 600 pages and beautifully illustrated and very readable and accessible. But we're also, will sh- shortly be doing an ebook version or very similar to ebooks, but something that maintains the rich graphics. Possibilities of a digital edition, yeah. But yeah, retrosuburbia.com is the 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 partner website, which actually has a whole lot more case studies on it, as in addition to the case studies that are in the the book, and where we're wanting to add more to those. And there's resources, downloadable resources. There one in particular that I'd mention that's really relevant, probably to a lot of your audiences is an essay called Feeding Retro Suburbia, From the Backyard to the Bioregion. Because the book was written for what householders can do where they are, you know, there's that question of, okay, well, we're producing our own food here, but how does that relate to the larger food system, or at least where we get our food from? Where does our grain come from? Where do, uh, you know, meats that we're not producing... Come from So that relation to hinterland agriculture as well as commercial urban agriculture is a picture that I paint in that essay of how we could be living with a parallel food system that maybe within a decade could be feeding 20% of the population that is all localised, small scale, and that a quarter of the food could be coming from garden farming in suburbia and another quarter coming from urban agriculture, commercial urban agriculture, and the rest from our hinterlands. So I think that framework might be something that is, you know, very relevant to a lot of people. And that's just one of the resources that's uh,
0: Yeah, you think? Yeah. So that's on retrosuburbia.com. I actually just looked it up, feeding retro from the backyard to the bioregion. This looks like an amazing yeah. document. Thank you for doing
1: that. Yeah, well, we're hoping to continue to keep adding resources to the the website. And in fact, all the references in the book are linked in pages about each chapter on the website. And we're going to keep adding to that because of course, a book that covers such big territory in terms of the subject territory is inevitably only an outline of the patterns. And so we're referring off to resources both online and others that are we think are valuable in that field and we want to keep you know adding to that because a lot of these fields are of course are changing uh, rapidly
0: well awesome thank you for that thank you so much for joining us on the show today david
1: it's been a, a great pleasure
0: and it's been a great pleasure for me too this is has been an amazing
1: conversation.
0: So how can our listeners get a hold of you and your organization?
1: Well, Holmgren Design is our website, Holmgren Design. That's uh, holmgren.com.au. And you can see some of the things we do there. And the sister site is, uh, of course, through Retro Suburbia. That can also access us. And our colleagues run the site, permacultureprinciples.com which is, you know, a a bigger spectrum of work that connects to us as well through those three sites.
0: Excellent. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash David Holmgren. This concludes our episode two interview with David Holmgren. Stay tuned on Saturday for